Father, you are faithful. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your steadfast love to all generations of your people. Father, we praise you for your goodness to the children of men. And we praise you, Father, for your gift of your word to us that we can see recorded your mighty deeds and your great faithfulness. Father, would you uh, work in our hearts and our minds as we go through this book of Daniel? Father, would you give me clarity and uh, guard us from error? And uh, would we enjoy your good gift to us in this book? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, welcome to Daniel, the fourth of our major prophets, though uh, by measurement, not so major as Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, because we only have a dozen chapters instead of 50-some or 60-some to deal with in a few weeks. Um, And uh, I'm looking forward to this. I hope you are as well. Um, Tell me, when you consider the book of Daniel, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Prophecy, Prophecy, right? Say again, eschatology, right? Yeah, Daniel, book of Daniel has been referred to as the epicenter of Old Testament eschatology. Um, If it's not, it's really close to it. Uh, What else comes to mind? Lion's Den. There you go. That's right. I, that, I figured that would be the first one, but Brian's just shy. So what else comes to mind? A statue. Wait, there was something else. A statue. The sovereignty of God. That's right. Yeah. I'm going to propose to you now that what we will see over the next several weeks uh, is that the main theme of Daniel, I'm, I'm in Joyce's camp, uh, that, that uh, we're going to see God's sovereignty uh, over kingdoms and rulers um, over and over and over again. Uh, and uh, his faithfulness to his people uh, throughout all uh, situations. What else do you, comes to your mind about Daniel? Anything else? It's okay if we don't have anything else. Just wanted to check. His faithfulness, to God. His faithfulness sure. That's Say again? Sure, there's lots of narrative. That's right. In fact, uh, really about the first half of the book is as much history or narrative or biography uh, as it is anything else. And the second half, more prophecy, though there's not a bright line between the two. If you're looking for something that, that is uh, taxonomical, <laughs> that's just very, very this or that, uh, you're going to be disappointed or confused or frustrated because this sort of spills over. We have, we have biographical prophecy and we have prophetic uh, biography and it all mixes together somewhere in the middle of that. Um, here's one thing about Daniel that maybe we, we don't think a ton about. This man and his life and his ministry really connects everything pre-exilic Right, everything right up to the fall of Jerusalem. Think First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Think all of that right up to the fall of Jerusalem. He connects that 
with the return of the Jews, right? Think Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. Um, in between there, we don't have a ton except this man, Daniel. And that's precisely the period within which he ministered. Um, the very first um, verse of Daniel, if you haven't turned there already, you should soon. The very first verse of Daniel tells us that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is 605 B.C. So this is the first of the, the waves of exiles that are being taken out of Jerusalem. And if we looked at chapter 10, I think it's chapter 10, verse 1 of Daniel, it speaks of the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Um, this is about the 535-ish range, so the other end of the exile. And that connects, that connects with the very end of Second Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra. Did you know that those, the last couple verses of Second Chronicles and the first few verses of Ezra are identical? Um, because they declare Cyrus's proclamation that moved by God, Cyrus, king of Persia, said, listen, uh, the God of heaven has given me all these nations, and I declare that the Jews should return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Um, and so, yeah, Daniel sits right in between that. He's, he's anchored at both ends. He lived and ministered through, through both ends of this and, and all the way through. Daniel is referenced in Ezekiel 14. Um, just make a mental, we won't turn there, Ezekiel 14, make a mental note there. Um, as an exemplar of righteousness. Uh, Ezekiel was uh, castigating the false prophets, the false leaders, and the corruption in Jerusalem. And he sent, essentially said, listen, if, even if Daniel and Job and Noah were in this city, only they would be saved by their own righteousness. They don't even have such great righteousness to save another person in this city. It's how corrupt. And so um, the, that Ezekiel uses Daniel as one of those three righteous men is really interesting. It's even more interesting if you remember. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's okay. Daniel, when he was taken uh, from Jerusalem, was probably 14, maybe 12. Um, and when Ezekiel was writing, Ezekiel 14, Jerusalem hadn't fallen yet. So it was within 20 years of that. So we're talking about Daniel being a maybe 25, maybe 30-year-old man at most. And Ezekiel is talking about him as one of the pillars of righteousness and faithfulness at that age. Uh, that is astounding about the man Daniel. <clears throat> Okay, Daniel and his friends, his, his three musketeers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are also referred to sort of indirectly in Hebrews 11. You may not have thought of it this way before. Let me, let me read Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32. 
<clears throat> and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That should get your attention if you're studying Daniel. Quenched the power of fire. That should get your attention when you think about Daniel. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Uh, so an indirect reference, I think, here in Hebrews 11 uh, to Daniel and, and his uh, three friends. Um, so this is Daniel. And uh, as I already mentioned, I think the big theme that we'll want to be looking for is God's sovereignty over kings and rulers and nations. And here's how, well, we'll get to this, this in a bit in the structure, because I already mentioned that this, this book breaks out sort of into these two halves, one that's more biographical, narrative in nature, and one that is, is more prophetic in nature. So now, if we see God's faithfulness in narrative, in history, what impact would that have on you as you think about the prophetic parts of Daniel? Or are they just completely separate? Is there, is there any, any value or anything that you would, you would take away from the prophecies of Daniel based upon what you see in the history, the biography of Daniel and how God works? So that question helping Deb, Deborah? They're going to come to pass. If we, if we can see that we can trust God, we see his work in the life of Daniel, early in Daniel's life, right? We see God's faithfulness, his sovereignty over the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and then over Cyrus, Belshazzar, on and on. We can trust that this same God is sovereign as well in future history, history that hasn't been written from our standpoint yet. Right? It gives us confidence. It gives us courage, not in ourselves, uh, but in the God of our salvation. And so I hope that that is one of the things that, that you will take away. Uh, the structure of this, as you see God sovereignly rule in history, so you should expect God to rule in the prophesied future. One of the unique things about Daniel uh, that you'll see is that a big chunk in the middle is written in Aramaic. Uh, there are a couple other verses scattered here and there throughout uh, the scriptures in Aramaic, but we've got from, from chapter 2, verse 4. In fact, it tells, tells us exactly where it starts. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, Begin Aramaic <laughs> from there, <laughs> okay? From that point forward through the end of chapter 7 uh, is, is entirely in Aramaic. Now, God has a reason for everything. Uh, Hebrew uh, was the language of the Jews, was the language of God's people of Israel. Aramaic at that time was the language of international commerce. This was the language of the nations and so God wants to make plain 
from the original language, the original inscripturation of this book, not only to his people, but to all nations, the truths that are coming to pass and that will come to pass. Um, yeah. Another part of the structure of Daniel, before we uh, dive into this uh, specifically, and you've heard Jeremy say this uh, through other books, you've heard Dexter say this, uh, talking about a chiasm uh, of, of the way material is presented. And it's, the, the idea is that material comes sort of in pairs, separated but, but as you look at these pairs, they come together like the center of the letter X, or he, he, sorry, he. And, and right at the very center, there's meaning here because what are they pointing to? So uh, we have this in a big picture uh, with, within Daniel. Chapters 2 and 7 uh, speak of four great kingdoms. Chapter 2 through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, chapter 7 uh, through Daniel's vision. So this is, we're out on the points of the X here. Coming in a little bit closer to chapters 3 and 6, we have episodes of God's deliverance of his faithful children. So the fiery furnace and the lion's den. Chapters 4 and 5, as we get nearer and nearer the center, we have God's sovereignty over the lives of these kings in this case, the uh, two kings of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So that's, uh, we have the four great kingdoms, God's deliverance, and God's sovereignty over the kings. And so you might want to ask, well, what, what's the point? What's, what's the focal point? What's the center? Um, look with me at the end of Daniel 4. All of this is pointing us to Nebuchadnezzar's great doxology about Yahweh, starting in verse 34. At the end of the days, this is after uh, he had been given a mind of an animal and had been out and away from um, the palace for seven years, eating grass, right? Uh, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the declaration of not the most wicked king in history, but he would be on the top ten list. After the Lord had humbled him and helped him to see, caused him to see, that Nebuchadnezzar, the biggest, baddest king on the planet, was not the biggest, baddest king on the planet after all. That it was the Lord Yahweh who was the ruler of all. And that, that entire section of chapters 2 to 7 has a focal point on this truth about Yahweh. And that's why I believe that that's, that's the theme that we're going to see over and over again uh, as we go through Daniel. 
So what of chapters 1 and then 8 through 12? Well, 1 sets the stage, and that's where we're going to go uh, just in a second here. And, uh, and 8 through 12, uh, those chapters are going to retell the stories of chapters 2 through 7, but in a different perspective and a different view. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has, a, by the way, Sinclair Ferguson has an outstanding book on Daniel that you'll really enjoy. Um, and um, sort of commentary, sort of just a, a guide to enjoy the book. But he speaks of it this as progressive um, parallelism. Uh, it's like going up a spiral staircase, right? If you, had your, if you had your phone and you had the GPS on, you were watching where you were, and you were going up a spiral staircase, it would look like you're just going over the same path over and over and over again, but from a higher and higher perspective. And that's sort of the picture of what we can expect to see when we get to the last five chapters of Daniel, is that we will have a different perspective on some of the same things that we've sort of seen play out through the first uh, few chapters. Okay. I've given you some milestones there, some dates uh, to, to help you see where the book of Daniel traverses. We've talked about a few of these already. Just notice that chapters 7 and 8 are conspicuously out of order. So again, if, if you have OCD tendencies towards everything's got to be just so, and I have all my cookbooks alphabetical, um, these, there's going to be a couple cookbooks that are going to be out of order here for you. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, this gives you the span of of Daniel's ministry. So with that, uh, let's start with Daniel 1. And let me read the first seven verses. And we'll set the scene here um, for what is to follow. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. All right, we'll, we'll pause there. So, as I mentioned earlier, what we have just read uh, is, is the first of three waves of exiles being removed from Jerusalem. And so the, the question for you, next, my next question for you, 
is, did Nebuchadnezzar take Jerusalem or did the Lord give it into his hands? Yes, that's right. Good answer. Yes, that's right. Um, no doubt, verse, verse 1 tells us of the sinful actions of Nebuchadnezzar coming up against Jerusalem and besieging it. And we talked about what besiegement looked like uh, in Ezekiel, and it was, it was not a pretty sight. Um, uh, harrowing days for those people as everything that they depended upon ran out over time. Um, but verse 2 couldn't be more clear about God's work here, right? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. There's, there's just no way to miss that. So what, what we have here uh, is uh, the doctrine of God's providence and more specifically concurrence. That is, the, when two things are happening at the same time and they, they sort of flow together, the actions, in this case, of Nebuchadnezzar wicked king and the decree uh, the, the four planned plan of God working together um, and, and what we will see this over and over again uh, not only today but in every week uh, that we're in here um, what's happening is, is actually the beginning of fulfillment of words that Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah uh, back in 2 Kings 20. You can turn there if you'd like, 2 Kings 20, verse 16. I'll set the backdrop for you. Uh, Hezekiah, um, we don't have time for his whole history, but the portion here is he received an envoy uh, from the king of Babylon, and in his great excitement... Uh, showed that envoy everything <laughs> that he had. Oh yeah, this look at look at these weapons. Uh, look at how we've built our defensive forces here in Jerusalem. Look at our stockpile of food. We think it'll last three and a half months. I mean, I'm making some of this up. We don't know the details of what he said, but he showed him everything. Look at the vessels that we have here in the temple. Uh, God's been so good. It's an amazing place to live. Um, and the envoy went back and did what an envoy would do. Um, he, he told the king, okay, we know exactly how to defeat this city. But in the meantime, Isaiah, this is Second Kings 20, verse 16, came to Hezekiah and said, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So the Isaiah gives this prophecy to Hezekiah, and what we're seeing in Daniel 1 is just the beginning of the fulfillment of that. Um, the fruition of God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so, things that were taken. The king, verse 2. The, some vessels. I'm back in Daniel 1. Sorry. The king, verse 2. Some temple vessels, uh, verse 2. Some people were taken, uh, both of the royal family and of nobility. 
verse 3, it refers to them as princes. Uh, and according to verse 4, what the king and, uh, had, had tasked Ashpenaz to do was to get the best. What, you know, the, without blemish, the best in appearance, what seemed to be the, the, the best educated, the most well-trained of, of the people that you can find. And so they gathered them up. We don't know how many, but we know at least these four uh, were, were taken away and were given insight into the goals of the Babylonians. That was that they would have these young men to be able to be serving in the presence of the king of Babylon. Um, the Chaldeans, a little, just a little moment on Babylonians versus Chaldeans. Right? Chaldeans are two things. One is geographical. It's the southern part of Babylonia. It's the southern part of that, that kingdom. Uh, but um, more often when you, when you hear the word Chaldean in the Bible, it's probably talking about magi, uh, astrologers, wise men. Take your pick. Um, um, and, and so the king of Babylon is always looking for more and more wisdom. They, it was the highest and most important thing to a Chaldean was knowledge and wisdom. And if they could get some of the finest youth from Jerusalem to add to their core of Chaldean wisdom and knowledge, so much the better. And so how do you do that? Well, you assimilate, right? So we're, we're going to give them the food from the king's table. We're going to give them the very best education that a Chaldean could have. Uh, we're going to teach them our literature and our language uh, so that they're ready to stand uh, in the palace before the king. And we're going to give them new names. Uh, because all of those original names, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, it's a shame we can't remember those as easy as we can, the ones in the, that they're given, um, all have reference to the God of Israel. They all have reference to Yahweh. And every one of those new names have reference to a god of the Babylonian. Right? So this is part of the assimilation. Okay. Yeah, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, uh, Jehovah is gracious. Mishael, who is equal to God. And Azariah, God is a helper. And all of those other names that they were given uh, have to do with Nebo or Bel or Marduk, uh, three of the, the gods of the Babylonians. So this sets the scene um, uh, for the rest of the book. And uh, let's go on to verses 8 to 16, which I've entitled Resolved. And I think you'll see why in three words. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? 
so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay. So another question for you. It's not about a vegetarian diet. (laughs) Did Daniel convince the chief of the eunuchs Or did God give Daniel favor in this man's eyes? Yes. Yes, that's right. (laughs) You're seeing the pattern. Good. Yeah, Daniel worked with all his strength and his cunning and his wisdom and creativity that the Lord gave him to try to find a way to not defile himself. But it clearly stated that that God gave Daniel favor, not just favor, but compassion, this is, this, is a, this is a word of, of deep emotion and connection. So this chief of the eunuchs, who had, who had no reason to care about these Jewish boys, really, other than <laughs> clearly he didn't want them to turn out poorly because his head might be on the line, but he had no emotional connection. God put that in this man's heart. That's, that is amazing. Now, Though Daniel resolved, right, so he he set it firmly in his heart to not defile himself, I want you to see some things that Daniel was and was not here as he's he's resolving. And And it's hard. None of us, Lord willing, will ever be in a situation like what Daniel and, and his friends find themselves in, right? But we all know that we struggle against the world that is around us. We, you know, in different ways, uh, the call to conform or to fit in. But just, just take a peek here with me at what Daniel is and is not, what he's doing, what he's not doing. Uh, I'm going to submit he was not quarrelsome. He was not belligerent. He was not combative. Um, in verse 8, uh, did he demand uh, a different option? What's, what's the verb you see? He asked, right? Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs um, for permission uh, to, to not eat this king's food. Um, and even when the chief of the eunuchs uh, gave concern for his own head being lost, uh, Daniel didn't dismiss that, but he creatively proposed an alternative, a short, short-term trial. And look at verse 12 and following. Test your servants. Did you catch that? How Daniel is referring to himself and his three friends? It's not, there's no braggadocio here. There's no, you know, hey, our God will take care of us. Just test us. We got this. It's test your servants. I am, I am submitting to you, um, chief of the eunuchs and, and steward. I'm, I'm your servant. Just test us. 
He's pleading and asking, uh, not demanding, uh, not pugnacious in any way. Um, yeah, that's, he says this as well. Yeah, don't see it now, but it's at least twice down there. Your servants, verse 13, yeah. Deal with your servants according to what you see. He just says, let's, let's, can we try this for a week and a half? And, and, and deal with your servants as, as you see fit. He's, he's, while he's asking, he's not demanding. I, I find that instructive and helpful. Um, so, the steward listened to Daniel. The test was run, and at the end of ten days, Daniel plus three looked better than the rest. Uh, fatter in flesh is, is how the Hebrew reads, um, but the bottom line is they looked better. They looked healthier. Whatever healthy meant, in 605 B.C., uh, they were that. Um, and so um, the Lord granted that, um, and they were allowed to continue with this diet for the entire three years, we assume. Um, so a question now, to just look more closely at this defilement. Um, what was it that Daniel specifically was pushing back against? Assimilation. I agree with that. Yeah. Because was it, was it a non-kosher diet? You know, food that was not prepared in the proper Jewish way? Probably not. Probably the vegetables were going to be handled by heathens as well and not prepared in the way that, that a young boy would expect his Jewish vegetable stew to be um, was it because the food of the king was consecrated to false gods well it's probably true of the vegetables as well and really no difference difference there um, I have I have read sadly to my disgrace a, a, a man who says that this is because these are natural foods and they're raw vegetables and they're not processed and and they're not, and, uh, okay, and nor is this a vegetarian diet thing here. Okay, this is not a this is not uh, carnivorous or being vegetarian. Um, let's let the scripture speak for itself. So look with me again <clears throat> at how this passage describes the food in question. Verse eight. It's called the king's food. Verse eight again. The wine that he that is, the king drank. Verse 10, uh, I'm, I fear that my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. So this is food assigned by the king, drink assigned by the king. Verse 13, the king's food again. Verse 15, the king's food again. And verse 16, the food and the wine that they were to drink. Um, so, rehashing uh, where we've been, Daniel and his friends had been specifically selected in Jerusalem, had been taken into exile. They'd been isolated, now indoctrinated uh, with what they're being taught, given new names. They knew that they were being groomed to serve uh, before the king um, of Babylon. The food would just be the next logical step, but it's never described as defiled food or unclean food 
unholy food or anything like that. It's just the only thing we see about the food is that it's the food that is the king's food. It's the food for Babylonian royalty, and it's the food that the king has assigned to you. And in Daniel's mind, it appears, this is just a step too far. And this is a choice we can make, and I'm trusting that God will provide another way. Daniel uh, couldn't change what name was given to him. That was outside his sort of realm of control. It was, he, couldn't, he couldn't control where he was living, what, what books were going to be put in front of him, what lessons he was going to listen to. But he had an option here. Uh, with the food. And this was a place where he had simply resolved, this is, this is a step I will, I will not associate myself with the king's food. And I think that that's simply it. I'm not taking this step of assimilation. The reason, another reason why I believe that that is the case is if you look back with me at Daniel 10, verse 3. Different king, different age, 70 years later, Chapter 10, verse 2, we'll start there. In those days, which is the third year of Cyrus, so 70 years later, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now, if Daniel is saying, I was mourning and I didn't eat the delicacies or the meat or the wine while I was mourning, I think it's a fair assumption that before that three-week mourning period, he had somehow, he had somewhere switched to eating that food. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> makes sense to Drew and me. All right, let's move on and we'll finish up this, this passage uh, in Daniel 1, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So the three-year um, indoctrination training period is compressed into one verse, verse 17. And these men now maybe 15 to 17, are presented before the king. A question again. You already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego study hard to learn, or did God give them learning and skill and wisdom? Yes. Yeah, that's right. They're doing their, their part, and the Lord is providing um, for them. Um, <clears throat> these men were chosen already because of their skill and knowledge and wisdom. They had proven themselves already, if we read back in verse 4. And they are continuing that pathway 
because this is what the Lord has put in front of me. But the Lord is providing them with this great knowledge. And so they worked and read and studied and listened and asked and discussed and debated and wrote. All the while, God was giving them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Um, The ability not only to uh, acquire knowledge, but to apply it in the best way. And to Daniel, uh, he is given understanding in all visions and dreams. And this will be uh, demonstrated uh, next week if you come back uh, right away. And the reader is going to be reminded over and over and over again of this gift uh, that was given to Daniel. And if you're thinking in these categories, you should also be thinking of another young man from the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 37. Name starts with a Joe, ends with a Seth, right? Yeah, right? Joseph is given uh, the ability, the gift uh, to interpret dreams and, and by which an entire nation was preserved, right? God's people were preserved, literally, from starvation because of that gift of, of God. Okay. So with the training time ended, they're brought before the king. The king speaks with them, and Daniel and his uh, buddies are found to be exemplary uh, in every matter that they were asked about, given the high praise of being maybe hyperbolically so, ten times better, ten times better than everyone else. Um, Yeah, whether it was seven and a half times better or 114 times better, they stood out uh, amongst the group. We shouldn't be surprised, knowing what we've read in in verse 17, that God gave them this knowledge. However, it is especially high praise that it's acknowledged, again, amongst the Chaldeans, for whom wisdom and knowledge, was was, that was their foremost mark of how they uh, rated a particular person. Calvin says, The Chaldeans boasted of their wisdom from their birth and esteemed other nations as barbarians. And that, these Chalde- that this Chaldean king and those in the court saw these four Jews as ten times better than everyone else is really an astounding thing. So the chapter ends uh, with a statement of Daniel's longevity at court. Uh, that it, what it literally says is that he lived until the first year of King Cyrus. That he was just there. Uh, and so he... He went through, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see Belshazzar, we're going to see Cyrus, we're going to see a person named Darius, we'll get to that later. Uh, It's not the easiest part of Daniel, but I think we can handle this. Um, But there are several other kings as well, and and it seems that that Daniel just served at court for seven decades um, until he was in his mid-80s, just as a faithful servant of God, but also a faithful helper to the king where, where the Lord had placed him. So, in the time we have left, I want to apply some of this, this history, this narrative, this biography. Because we've seen God give. If you didn't catch that um, on the page, God gave, I think, is, is the key to understanding chapter 1. Because in verses 1 to 4, God gave Jerusalem and its king over to Nebuchadnezzar. And in verses 9 to 14, he gave Daniel and his friends favor and compassion 
with their captor. And in verses 17 and following, he gave Daniel and his friends learning and skill and wisdom, and Daniel specifically understanding in visions and dreams. So in situations all the way from besiegement, defeat, being taken by your enemies, indoctrination, uh, fighting for the resolve not to be assimilated and defiled, all the way to being given gifts of knowledge and wisdom, God was faithfully and perfectly working his will in the lives of Daniel and these other men. And so my question for you uh, to ponder is where are you? Where are you today? Are you in a sort of exile, uh, overrun by your enemies, uh, being put in a position that you didn't ask for, that you didn't want? Um, are you fighting to remain undefiled um, with the pressures of the world around you? Um, or are you seeking wisdom for some important decision that may be lying ahead of you? The, what I want you to hear is that for those who are in Christ, the Lord is sufficient for these things. Um, he was working out his perfect will in all of those situations in Daniel 1, in those young men's lives, a thousand miles and several months away from their families. And he is sufficient for you. Regardless of the scenario you're in right now, um, he is sufficient. Uh, listen to Isaiah 46, 1 to 4. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. It's just a, a few chunks to the left. Isaiah 46, 1 to 4. Bel, this is a Babylonian god, Bel bows down. Nebo, another Babylonian god, stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Isaiah, this is thick sarcasm, by the way. Isaiah is saying those Babylonian gods, they're burdens. You have to put them in your saddlebag, and they're heavy, and you have to carry them. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me. Verse 3, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. The, the contrast between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4 here could not be greater. And Isaiah's point here is that false gods will never carry you. They will only be a burden to you. But the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will carry you in Christ no matter where you are. Uh, he is no burden. He is the lifter of burdens. He is the carrier of burdens. And so this is our God. And in Christ, he is ready and able to carry you. 
Second point of application, and then we'll be done. Well, then what do we do? Do we just, you know, whatever the situation I'm in, do I just take it and just sit and wait for God to solve it? Or just, that's right, no, we don't. We are to act. Uh, we, uh, God has not only bestowed on us his grace that calls, that saves, that grows, that keeps, that preserves to the end. He has also given us means of that grace of, by which we grow, by which we are kept. I want to give you just a handful of scriptures to, to think on that talk about this. And what we're doing right here in this room and what we'll do in this room and down the hall in about 20 minutes is a means of grace as we hear God's word read and preached and taught and as we pray together and sing together. So Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 speaks of us stirring up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. This is an active means of grace. Colossians 3.16 speaks about the wor- that we're called to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, uh, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing together with thankful hearts. These are things we do uh, as we seek God, as we enjoy God, as we worship him, as we uh, receive from him his good hand. John 13, 34, and 35, love one another. This is how the world knows who uh, the disciples of Christ are, the followers of Christ, that you love one another. And Philippians 4, uh, 4 through 9, rejoice. Don't be anxious, but pray with thanksgiving in your heart. These are, I mean, this is just a tiny sampling of the, the scriptures that we've been given the direction that we've been given to grow, to, to work in all the strength that the Lord provides, as Daniel and his three friends did, even as the Lord gave them into the hands of the king of Nebuchadnezzar and then gave them favor and then gave them understanding. They were not inactive, just sort of like in a tanning booth, just waiting for God's goodness to just, soak right into them. They were active, and we are called to be active as well. All right, well, we sort of got our hooks into Daniel um, today. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, um, we're going to get through Nebuchadnezzar. So that's chapters 2, 3, and 4. So enjoy those this coming week, and uh, I'll see you right back here um, next Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this work that you have done in the lives of Daniel and Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, and your sovereign hand over your people, and that this is true today for your people right here in this place. Uh, I don't know who's in exile, who's seeking to not be defiled, who's seeking for wisdom, Father, but I know that you are sufficient for every bit of that. And so I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged from what we see of how you give and you give and you give and your people are called to be faithful 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.